0: Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. I hate to sound like a broken Record. Record record. You and I enjoyed that joke. He has no idea what a record is. So I do hate to sound like a broken record, but online it is really astounding how many people still can't seem to figure out what the Bible says about God's intentions for Israel long term. And I know I talk about this a lot. We talk about Israelology here. We talk about getting your concept of Israel straight and biblical, because if you can get that right, then you can get the whole of the Bible right. And so there are people out there propounding all kinds of theories that are really based in the fact that God simply has not rejoined Israel as a nation back to their land and given them the peace and the kingdom that he has promised them. And so people feel that they need to excuse God. They feel that they need to uh, explain why God would do that. And the most common explanation, of course, is, well, the church is now Israel. And so the church, in some spiritual fashion, is satisfying the promises that God made to Israel. And in that way, God is sort of saving face. God's still faithful, he's doing what he's supposed to do, he's keeping all the promises that he's ever made, he's fulfilling his prophecies, but he's fulfilling them with the church, and in that way, fulfilling the promises to Israel. But tonight, we're going to look at some passages out of the book of Jeremiah, because I sort of assume, whenever I make mention of the new covenant, I just sort of assume that everybody knows what the whole Jeremiah 31 thing is about. Well, last week, as we were working our way through 2 Kings and the succession of kings in Israel and in Judah, we got to the point of Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim is practically the last king in Judah. At the time that Jehoiakim is king, the northern tribes, Israel, the northern ten tribes, have gone off into the Assyrian captivity. And now... At this juncture, during the 11 years that Jehoiakim is king, and of course he's made king by king of Egypt, Necho, who has made the younger son of Josiah, has made him king. And so during that 11 years, that's when Jeremiah really arises on the scene. Now he has been prophesying in Judah for 23 years. We read that last week, and nobody is listening to him. But there are several prophecies in Jeremiah that start right off by mentioning Jehoiakim. And that's who this particular prophecy is aimed at. So since Jeremiah shows up at exactly that moment in history, we veered off from our second king's study. The same way that we've been doing with all the minor prophets and showing how they fit in the succession of kings of Judah and the kings of Israel. And so last Week, I began reading out of Jeremiah, and then I said, we'll never get to everything that I'd like to get to tonight, so tonight is just a a carryover from last week, and this introduction is just for the folks who weren't here last week, but tonight we're going to look at several passages in Jeremiah that are particularly for Jehoiakim. But before we do that, I want to look at some passages from Jeremiah that very specifically spell out what God's intention is for Israel and Judah nationally. And then the folks online, the folks who disagree, the folks who don't like the idea that God still has a plan for national Israel, then their argument isn't with me. So stop typing. Don't send me an email. I don't want to hear about it because by the time I get done tonight, your argument's not with me. It's with the Bible. And the vast majority of the folks who draw those conclusions do seem to ignore huge swaths of the Bible. So since we are committed to every single word that's in the Bible and because we take the Bible at face value and because we believe that what God said is what God means... If he had meant something else, he'd have said something else, but he said this because this is what he means. So with that brief introduction, turn to Jeremiah 23, and you're going to feel, as we're reading different passages tonight, you're going to start feeling the argument that Jeremiah is making, and you're going to be overwhelmed once again by the evidence. And at the end, the evidence is going to drive you to a conclusion. And if your conclusion is, well, it can't mean that, then it seems to me that you have to prove that it doesn't mean that. Hmm. It seems to me that if all of the Old Testament prophets all speak of the house of Israel and the house of Judah, very specific nomenclature for the northern and the southern tribes, And if that language is consistent all the way through the Old Testament, which it is, that the New Testament authors, who themselves are Jews, who know that nomenclature of the northern and southern tribes, House of Israel, House of Judah, if when they say Israel and Judah, they mean something else, to me it seems that it is incumbent on them to tell us that they now mean something else. And the fact that no New Testament author ever redefines that terminology means that those Jewish writers are still writing about Jewish ideas using Jewish language about the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And until they say otherwise, and for 2,000 years the Bible has only said what it says, but until they say otherwise, I just simply can't come to the conclusion that they mean something else. If they meant something else, they'd have written something else, but they didn't. So starting in chapter 23 of Jeremiah, let's start at, oh, we'll start at verse 1 and build up speed right into it. Woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel concerning the shepherds who are tending my people. You have scattered my flock and driven them away and have not attended to them. Behold, I am about to attend to you for the evil of your deeds, declares the Lord. Then I myself shall gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them, and I shall bring them back to their pasture, and they will be fruitful and multiply." Now, there are a couple of conditions to verse 3 there. The first condition is Israel has to be scattered for God to say, I'm going to gather them. And so this scattering that is taking place with the northern tribes into the Assyrian captivity and then north up through the headwaters of the Black Sea and into the Caucasus, and then they disappear to history. And then the southern tribes, as they go into Babylon, at this point, they are all out of the land that they have been given, that was promised to Abraham by an unconditional covenant. God gave them this land in perpetuity forever, and now they are all, all 12 tribes, going to be out of their land. But that is necessary for this prophecy to be fulfilled. God is saying, I'm going to regather them. I'm going to bring them all back again to their land. That hasn't happened yet. The 10 tribes that make up Israel, the northern tribes have not returned to their land. 1948, the reestablishment of the nation of Israel, we have seen some Jews who have returned back to their ancestral homeland. But that's still not the regathering of the 12 tribes. But God says that he is going to gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries. And then he takes responsibility for it where I have driven them and I shall bring them back to their pasture and they will be fruitful and multiply and I shall also raise up shepherds over them and they those shepherds will tend them. And they will not be afraid any longer, nor will they be terrified, nor will any be missing, declares the Lord. Okay, so Israel over there in the Middle East right now, do they seem a tad terrified right now? Sure, they're not at peace over there, because this promise has not been fulfilled yet. Now, when you come across promises like this, you have to do one of two things theologically. You either have to say, That's what God said, and I believe it. I will adjust my theology to adhere to what God actually says. Or you have to deny that God meant what he said. And you have to say, well, he means something else. And those are really the only two choices you've got. I've told you before that I used to have a a bumper sticker back in my Dodge van back in my college days. Somebody gave me a bumper sticker. I loved my van, so I would not stick things on it. So I put it in the window of my van. And it was a very popular bumper sticker back in those days. It said, God says it. I believe it. That settles it. And then one of my friends said to me, "Uh, that that sign is wrong. I said, what's wrong with, with my bumper sticker? And he said, God said it. That settled it. It doesn't matter if you believed it or not. And I got my scissors out. I was like, yeah, you're right. (laughs) Snip, snip, snip. Yeah, God said it. That settled it. And that has been my philosophy ever since. If it's in the Bible and God said it, that's the end of it. That settled it. If you disagree with it, if you reinterpret it, if you reassign it to some other context, well, then that's your problem with what the Bible says. But what the Bible says plainly and clearly is that God is going to reestablish Israel. But now listen to this. Verse 5. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. Okay, so now we're talking about the Davidic covenant. And the promise that David would always have an heir, one of his sons, was going to sit on the throne ruling over the 12 tribes of Israel. And then his son, Solomon, at the end of his reign, he was told that the 10 northern tribes were going to have a separate king. Jeroboam became their king but God because of the promise he made to David he left David a couple of the tribes Judah and Benjamin and the Levites that served in Jerusalem and so that became David's kingdom so since the time of David there haven't been any of the sons of David who have ever ruled righteously over the collective 12 tribes of Israel and yet that's the covenant promise and so here God brings it up again And I kind of think if God keeps bringing it up, we ought to pay attention. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is his name by which he will be called. He'll be called the Lord of Righteousness. Okay, now at the time that Jeremiah is saying this, Israel is already in the Assyrian captivity, and Jeremiah is predicting that Babylon is coming down on the southern tribes. And so this is the end of the Davidic line. Unless Hezekiah magically does all this, then it's not fulfilled. And certainly Hezekiah cannot be called the Lord, our righteousness. But when God determines that Jesus is going to come onto the stage of history, an angel tells Mary specifically what his name is going to be, because he's going to be Emmanuel, God with us. So you're going to call his name Yahshua. You're going to call him Jesus, the Greek cognate. You're going to call him that because he's going to save his people from their sins. Why? Because it was promised right here that he is going to do justice and righteousness in the land. And in his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. Now, Jesus came to the planet. And while he was on the planet, he was asked repeatedly, are you the king? When he rode into Jerusalem, the triumphal entry, People threw their robes and palm branches in the streets and they cried, Hosanna to the son of David. Why? Because of prophecies like this. You're the one. You're the one that God said is going to come. You're, that's why the, the genealogies in Matthew and Luke trace him back to David. And of course, Luke, I think, traces him all the way back to Adam. But that he goes through David's lineage is very, very important because he is the son of David who's been promised ever since the Davidic covenant. And so they keep trying to make him a king. At one point, they even took him and tried to make him a king by force because they wanted to throw off the Roman persecution. And they finally wanted to make themselves the great kingdom they once were. And Jesus turned around and walked through the midst of them because he, he wasn't there to be king at that moment. Even though Isaiah said things about him like, the government will be upon his shoulders. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders. And if the end of his righteous reign, there's going to be no end to it. Okay, so you know all that, you know those prophecies, and now here's Jesus on the planet, and he's doing these miracles, and he's proving that he is the very son of God. Every Jew who knew anything about his scriptures, the next thing they're going to say is, king. He's our king. Now we're going to get a kingdom. And that's why, before he sailed off into the blue, after 40 days, the book of Acts tells us very specifically, he spent 40 days talking to the apostles about the kingdom that's the language and then before he leaves they ask him will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel that's not a random question that's a question based on these kinds of prophecies because their anticipation was you're the king we're promised a kingdom are you going to restore all of Israel and all of Judah the way that the Bible all says you're going to Every prophet, every major prophet, every minor prophet, speak with one voice and say the same thing, that God is going to restore Israel and Judah. So can you see how that ties from Old Testament into New Testament? In New Testament times, they're seeing the satisfaction, the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. The Old Testament said somebody's coming and he's going to be savior and he's going to be king and he's going to be the son of David then someone shows up who's the son of David and is clearly the son of God and has power and authority like no other man ever. Well, of course, the Jews and the Israelites would say, king, and especially after he resurrected, well, you're the best king ever. They can't kill you. Nobody can kill you. You're the best king. Be our king. Okay, so he left because it wasn't his purpose when he came the first time. But then the whole rest of the New Testament and a good portion of the Old Testament says that he is going to reign in an everlasting kingdom. And so we are looking forward to that. When he taught his disciples to pray, when they said, teach us to pray, he said, our father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And the next phrase was a kingdom come. come. Pray for the kingdom. Not only thy kingdom come, but thy will be done on earth the way it is in heaven. Because when Jesus establishes a kingdom that will never end, it's going to be a kingdom that is going to be in justice and in righteousness in the land. And God's will is going to be done. So Jesus even incorporated it into the apostles' prayer. So, back to Jeremiah 23. In his days, Judah will be saved Israel will dwell securely, and this is his name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. Therefore, verse 7, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when they will no longer say, as the Lord lives, who brought up the sons of Israel from the land of Egypt. That was such a cataclysmic moment in history that was the Passover event it's after God brought all the plagues on Egypt and he drowned Israel's enemies in the Red Sea that was such a big event that every year they had to stop at Passover and remember that event the deliverance out of Egypt and so that phrase this Hebraism of people saying as the Lord lives And then they would identify him. Sometimes they would say, as the Lord lives, the maker of heaven and earth. As the Lord lives, the redeemer of Israel. Well, here's God saying they're no longer going to say, as the Lord lives, who brought up the sons of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Now, by the way, that deliverance out of the land of Egypt, that's a reality. That's history. That's a fact. We know that that has firm foundation. Because the second half of this promise, verse 8, is but here's what they'll say but as the Lord lives who brought up and led back the descendants of the household of Israel from the north from all the countries where I have driven them and then they will dwell on their own soil how specific do you want it okay so when this happens when God restores Israel and Judah then even their collective memory of God's deliverance is going to change. Their moment of deliverance that they could point to historically is the deliverance out of Egypt. And so that's what they would always point to as the moment that it was obvious that God was for Israel. But when he gathers them all, including Israel, the ten northern tribes, the tribes of the north, he's very specific here, who have been scattered in the Assyrian captivity and have never been regathered since. God knows that. And God says specifically, when I bring them back to their own land, to their own soil, when I plant them again, well, then they're not going to refer back to the Israel deliverance. They're going to mention that one because it's going to be so magnificent, so unbelievable, so cataclysmic in the history of God's dealings with Israel. Okay, so now God has set up a fence post, and he said, this moment right here, which was my chief moment with Israel, this deliverance right here, this is what they've remembered for 1,400 years. I've made them keep the Passover and keep the feast to remember this deliverance. When Jesus comes on the planet, he changes it and says, now when you take this bread and drink this cup, now remember me. And then when he comes back, he's going to do this very thing. When the Lord of Righteousness returns and regathers all of Israel, they are, in fact, going to remember him and his deliverance when he saves all Israel. That's precisely what Jeremiah has prophesied here. Now, if he only said it once, that would be enough. Mm -hmm. If he only said it once, we'd be forced to believe it. Except that we've seen this over and over and over again. All of the prophets keep saying it, and Jeremiah says it several times over and over again. I remember sitting with Elder Ward years ago in a hotel room, and he was smoking his pipe. And we were chatting, and David Morris was there, and David said something about future for Israel. And I said to David, Well, you know, how many times does God have to say something for it to be true? And Elder Ward tamped down his pipe and leaned into me and said, only once. That's right. He only has to say it once. Hmm. The church is very, some denominations, part of the church, is very big on the you must get born again. You must be born again. You must be born again. Do you know how often that's said in the Bible? Once. Yeah, it's John 3. You must be born again. There are whole movements built around that. Yes, there's other language about it and the regeneration, and the, but the, you must be born again? Jesus said that once, or at least it's recorded once in the whole Bible. How often is restoration of Israel mentioned? Over and over, over, and over again. Constantly over and over. So it seems like we'd adhere to that. Alright, so now let's turn to Jeremiah 30, let's go over there and we're going to read 30 and 31 because this is sort of the quintessential section of Jeremiah that makes this promise of a new covenant. But the language is so excessively clear and so amazingly precise that I find it a a wonderment that anybody can be confused by this language. There is a rule in theology, in the study of theology. People will tell you um, that you should interpret what they call the more difficult passages in light of the clear passages. And then, of course, they go on to tell you exactly what they think the difficult passages are so that they can kind of sweep those aside. Then they tell you what they think the clear passages are. Okay, Jeremiah 30 and 31, really clear passages, These are really clear passages, so if you have any question at all about what God's intention is for Israel, here it comes. Starting right at chapter 30, verse 1, the word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, write all the words which I have spoken to you in a book. For behold... The days are coming. You're going to hear that phrase quite a few times. The days are coming. The days are coming. This is God saying, in the future, I'm going to do this. The days are coming. For behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people, Israel and Judah. Okay, Now, why does God refer to them as Israel and Judah? Because he's talking about the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Collectively, all 12 tribes, they are the nation of Israel, but ever since that breakup of the the southern and northern tribes under Jeroboam during the time of Solomon, ever since then, they became known as the northern tribes, those 10 tribes, which went by the nickname Ephraim and Mount Ephraim and Samaria. All of those names were used for them, but those were all designations for those 10 northern tribes. And Judah was always the designation for the southern tribes. And there was actually conflict between the two and warfare. And Jeroboam, in order to get the people to be loyal to him, set up a system of worship of foreign idols so that his people wouldn't go to Jerusalem to worship because he was afraid if they ever did that, he would lose them. So in order to keep his political power He created a real division between Israel, north, and Judah, south. And there was a conflict between them. There was actual animosity between them. And God has to take care of that. He's going to have to solve that too. Write all the words which I have spoken to you in a book. For behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people, Israel and Judah. The Lord says, I will also bring them back to the land that I gave to their forefathers, and they shall possess it. Is any part of that unclear? Notice also, don't miss this, because this will be good for you. This will help you. Notice that despite the fact that they were so bad, so sinful, that God had to drive them out of their land. God had to punish them. God in keeping with his own holiness and his own law and the things that he said he would do to Israel if they broke his law, they continually, constantly broke his law until he referred to them as an erring wife committing whoredoms. I mean, they had become so unclean in his sight that he had to punish them and yet notice that he refers to them as my people. These aren't good people. These are God's people. And that should help you because every once in a while, you're not going to be a good person. Mm -hmm. Okay, it's the first real amen I've gotten tonight. (laughs) Because you're just not a good person and you're going to be afraid. You're going to be concerned. You're going to think, man, I hope God didn't see that. I hope God doesn't know about that. I hope God doesn't hold that against me. The reality is, if you are God's people then that's a done deal because God doesn't change. He doesn't change his mind and he doesn't change his love. And if he has set his everlasting love on you, then you are always his people even when you mess up real bad. Here, Israel and Judah had messed up horribly and yet God says they're my people. And I like that. (laughs) I like that a lot. And the land that he's going to bring them back to is the very land that he promised to their forefathers. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, this is your land forever in perpetuity. That's the Abrahamic covenant. Verse 4. Now these are the words which the Lord spoke concerning Israel and concerning Judah. For thus says the Lord, I have heard a sound of terror, of dread, and there is no peace. Ask now. And see if a male can give birth. Why do I see every man with his hands on his loins as a woman in childbirth? And why have all the faces turned pale? Alas, for that day is great. There is none like it. Does this sound familiar? Mm -hmm. This is Jesus in Matthew 24 talking about a time of trouble coming on the earth such as never was or ever would be again. It's described both in Matthew and the, in the book of Revelation. It's also described in Daniel as a time when people are going to be in such agony that men are going to be holding their sides, holding their bellies, bent over like a woman giving birth. And so that typology carries all the way through the Bible. So it's clear that God is saying here that there is a time of trouble, what we would call the great tribulation. What Jesus called, Philipsis Megas," tribulation the great That's a time that's coming. But notice what Jeremiah calls it. Alas, for the day is great. There is none like it. It is the time of Jacob's distress. And he will be saved from it. So what's the purpose of the great tribulation? You can go in and out of churches all your life, and you'll hear the phrase great tribulation, and you won't really know. Well, um, I guess God's just going to be mad at everybody because he doesn't like MTV and he's just going to get really mad one day and he's just going to break out in anger. There's a purpose for the tribulation that's coming, but it doesn't have to do with the church. The church is Christ's bride that are redeemed by Christ, a separate event in the history of God's economy. But there is a time coming when God is finally going to pay Israel what they deserve in their punishment, and that is a time of such great trouble and tribulation that it is unlike any time before or after. Daniel talks about this time. He also calls it The time of the great trouble, the great tribulation. And then Jesus picks it up in Matthew 24 and talks about a time of trouble such as never was or ever would be again. And then the book of Revelation picks it up and describes this time of terror and horror on the planet. So here's God saying, I've heard the sound of terror and of dread and there is no peace. Now, this is long before there's a church. This is before Jesus has come to the planet, and God already has the tribulation planned. And because God doesn't live in time, he can talk about it like it's right there before him, a time of trouble and a time of dread. For that day is great. There's none like it. It is a time of Jacob's distress, but he will be saved from it. And it shall come about on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke, off their neck and I will tear off their bonds and strangers shall no longer make them their slaves okay so that's the purpose of the tribulation it's going to start with Israel and then it's going to become a worldwide conflagration okay that wasn't as easy to say as you might think it's going to become a worldwide time of trouble And here God is saying, that's exactly what it's going to be. But the end of it is going to be that God himself, the Lord of hosts, is going to break the yoke of bondage off of Israel so that he can return them. And then look at verse 9. But they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king. Wait a minute. Because we're talking about the time of Hezekiah. We're talking about the time of Jehoiakim. The very last kings of the lineage of David and then Israel and Judah are all cleared out of their land and that's the end of the Davidic line that's it there's no more kings in Israel there's no kings of David in Israel right now they've got a prime minister but here God says I'm going to regather Israel and Judah and I'm going to give them David as a king So it's going to be of the lineage of David. The Davidic covenant is going to come true again because here's what he says. But they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king whom I will raise up for them. And fear not, O Jacob, my servant, says the Lord. My servant. This is after he has scattered them. This is after he has driven them away into all those countries. He knows where they are. He's going to bring them back to their land and he continues to call them my people, my servant. And notice the promise. After the days of tribulation he says that he's going to break the yoke off them and then they will serve the Lord their God. They're not doing that now. But they're going to. We have yet to get to the prophet Zechariah. But Zechariah talks about Jesus coming down and Touching the Mount of Olives. And when his feet touch the Mount of Olives, it cleaves in half. And then Israel is going to look on him whom they have pierced and weep as a mother weeps over her only child. So God is going to break their hearts over Jesus and bring them salvation through Jesus. And reestablish them as a kingdom and as a nation through Jesus. I am not preaching, just to make this very clear, I am not preaching two modes of salvation. I'm not saying that there's one mode of salvation for the church through Jesus and another mode of of restoration for Israel through the law or anything like that. It's all about Jesus. It's always Jesus-centric. But there is a plan for Israel and there is a plan for the church. It's Jesus who accomplishes it all. They shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. And fear not, O Jacob, my servant, declares the Lord. And do not be dismayed, O Israel, for behold, I will save you from afar and your offspring from the land of their captivity. And Jacob shall return and shall be quiet and at ease, and no one shall make him afraid. Not only have the northern tribes not returned to their land, they're not at ease right now. They're not resting from all their enemies right now. God is going to establish all of that. Jacob will return and shall be quiet and at ease. No one shall make him afraid. For I am with you, declares the Lord, to save you. For I will destroy completely all the nations Where I have scattered you, only I will not destroy you completely, but I will chasten you justly, and will by no means leave you unpunished. For thus says the Lord, your wound is incurable, and your injury is serious. Do I need to point out that when Isaiah describes the death of Christ? that he says, and by his stripes we are healed. Isaiah is talking about Israel. He's not talking about the church. The church didn't exist at that time. But he's pointing out to Israel, it's a prophecy about Israel, that through Christ and Christ's death, that through Christ that wound is going to be healed. So here's the language of wounding, that you are wounded, you are afflicted, your injury is serious. Verse 13 There is no one to plead your cause, no healing for your sore, no recovery for you. All your lovers have forgotten you. They do not seek you, for I have wounded you with the wound of an enemy and with the punishment of a cruel one. But your iniquity is great, and your sins are numerous. Why do you cry out over your injury? Your pain is incurable. Because your iniquity is great and your sins are numerous. And so I have done these things to you. Therefore, all who devour you shall be devoured. And all your adversaries, every one of them, shall go into captivity. And those who plunder you shall be plunder. And all who prey upon you, I will give for prey. For I will restore you to health. I will heal you of your wounds, declares the Lord, because they have called you an outcast, saying it is Zion and no one cares for her. Hmm. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will restore the fortunes of the tents of Jacob and have compassion on his dwelling places. And the city shall be rebuilt on its ruins and the palace shall stand on its rightful place and from them shall proceed thanksgiving and the voice of those who make merry and I will multiply them and they shall not be diminished and I will honor them and they shall not be insignificant. Their children also shall be as formerly like they used to be and the congregation shall be established before me and I will punish all their oppressors and their leader shall be one of them. And their ruler shall come from their midst, and I will bring him near, and he shall approach me. For who would dare to risk his life to approach me, declares the Lord. You get to the book of Revelation. God shows up with a scroll in his hands, and it's got the seven seals on it. And everybody in heaven's asking, Who's fit to go and open that? Who can take that from the Lord's hands? And then it says, The Lamb appears. And the Lamb takes the scroll from the hands of God, and in heaven praises break out to the Lamb. Okay, let's predict it all the way back here in Jeremiah. Nobody can approach God, but the one who's going to rule over Israel is the single one who can approach God. This is Christ. This is Christological talk. Their leader shall be one of them, and their ruler shall come forth from their midst... That means he's going to be an Israelite. He's going to be a descendant of David. He's going to be a Judahite. And I will bring him near, and he shall approach me. For who would dare to risk his life to approach me, declares the Lord. And you shall be my people, and I will be your God. Behold, the tempest of the Lord. Wrath has gone forth, a sweeping tempest. It will burst on the head of the wicked. The fierce anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has performed and until he has accomplished the intent of his heart in the latter days, you will understand this. Okay, so what's this all about? It's all about eschatology. It's all about latter days. And yet God continues to call Israel and Judah his people And because they are his people, remember what the writer of Hebrews says, whom the Lord loves, he chastens. Well, he got that theology from the fact that God chastened Israel and said so. I'm going to bring this time of trouble such as never was before, ever will be again. I'm going to bring that on Jacob because it's for the chastening of Jacob, not for the destruction of Jacob. And then Having poured out my wrath and punishment, I'm going to return them to their own land. I'm going to make them a great kingdom. I'm going to give them rest from all their enemies. And the only one who can approach me is going to be their king. And he's going to be of the lineage of David. And he's going to rule over Jerusalem, over the collective 12 tribes. Have I said anything yet that's not in the Bible? No. Nope. So do you believe it? It's, clear. It's, it's as clear as it can be. I've got seven minutes. We're going to read fast. (laughs) Everyone, circumcise your watches. Wait, what? what? (laughs) Just seeing if you were listening. You know the story of the pastor who was just about to deliver his Sunday morning sermon and he took his watch off and he set it over here on the side of the podium like that, on the side of the pulpit. The little boy in the front row turned to his friend and said, what does that mean when he does that? And his friend said, apparently nothing. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so here we go. Jeremiah 31. You should know this. You should know this. You've heard me talk about it enough times. Hebrews 8, the longest verbatim quote from the Old Testament imported into the New Testament, comes straight out of Jeremiah 31. At that time, declares the Lord. At that time, that end of times, the latter days. At that time, says the Lord... I will be the God of all the families of Israel, and they shall be my people. Notice he did not say, I hope they'll be my people. <laughs> I'd feel really lucky if they became my people. No, God is full of I shalls, I will, this is what I intend. At that time, declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the families of Israel, and they shall be my people. Thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. Remember, he said he's going to save the remnant. There's going to be trouble in Israel, but then he's going to have a remnant so that he's not destroying them. So the ones who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. Israel, when it went to find its rest. And the Lord appeared to him from afar, saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have drawn you with loving kindness. Again, I will rebuild you and you shall be rebuilt, O virgin of Israel. I got to go or I'm not going to make it. But, but look, <laughs> he's called them whores. He's called them erring wives. He's called them jilted lovers. He said, I was like a husband to you, and you chased your foreign gods and committed your whoredoms with those. And notice here, when he draws them back in grace, he calls them, O virgin of Israel. It's like none of that happened. None, none of that failure on your part, none of that chasing other gods. On the, be, why? Why can God just wipe out the debt? Why can God just say, I have taken all your sin collectively and cast it behind my back into the sea of forgetfulness? Why can God say, like through David, your sins are going to be as far as the east is from the west? Why? Because God has a plan to send his son, who is the redeemer of Israel, and call that over and over again, and his son is going to die and completely, utterly pay the sin debt of all God's people. And if Israel can be this bad, and then be called a virgin, well then your sin debt can be cleaned too. Your sin debt is forgiven in Christ. That's why Paul would say that when Christ returns, he's not returning with regard to sin. That's taken care of. He did that the first time. He's coming back to establish the kingdom. And so all the prophets will finally be fulfilled. The Lord appeared to him from afar, saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have drawn you with loving kindness. Again, I will build you, and you shall be rebuilt, O virgin of Israel. Again, you shall take up your tambourines and go forth to the dances of the merrymakers. I like the fact that the first instrument God brings up is a percussion instrument. This is personally satisfying to me. You will notice that he didn't say you will have guitars. And you'll, (laughs) never mind. (laughs) You'll take up tambourines. You're going to go dancing in the streets. You will go forth to the dances of the merrymakers. Again, you shall plant vineyards on the hills of, where? Samaria. That's back in your land. You're going to plant vineyards in Samaria. And the planters shall plant and enjoy them. One of the things that God said repeatedly about the vineyards of Samaria was that when they were invaded, that the Israelites were going to do all the work of planting the vineyards and growing the grapes so that there could be wine, so that there could be oil. They were going to do all that, and they were going to plant fields, and they were going to thresh the fields, but they weren't going to eat of it. They weren't going to drink of it because their foreign adversaries were going to take their food. And here God says, you're going to plant vineyards, and you're going to enjoy them. They're going to be yours. You're not going to have any fear from all of your enemies. Verse 6, For there shall be a day when watchmen on the foot of Ephraim shall call out, Arise, let us go up to Zion to the Lord our God. For thus says the Lord, Sing aloud with gladness for Jacob and shout among the chiefs of the nations. Proclaim, Give praise and say, O Lord, save thy people, the remnant of Israel. And behold, I am bringing them from the north country. By the way, that's the area they were scattered into. I will gather them from the remotest parts of the earth. Among them, the blind and the lame and the woman with child and she who is in labor with child altogether. A great company. They shall return here. With weeping they shall come, and by supplication I will lead them, and I will make them walk by streams of water on a straight path in which they shall not stumble, for I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. Okay, there's only one other firstborn in the Bible, and that's Christ. And here's God himself saying, Ephraim, that's a nickname for the northern kingdom, the scattered ten tribes of Israel who haven't been regathered since. God refers to them as his child, as his firstborn. Now, do you think that God has forgotten that he said that? No. Do you think that slipped God's mind? No. Or do you think still to this day he's aware? Because I'm reminding him right now. I'm reading it out of his word. You said this. You said this, so you got to do this. And you're either, again, going to say, well, God said it, that settled it. Or you're going to have to go through some tap dancing and machinations to say that God somehow didn't mean it. And by the way, the church Israel replacement folk say the church is Israel, but I've yet to hear any of them say the church is Jacob. But God calls them Jacob here. So we know who he's talking about. We know which people group it is. And it's not the church. Verse 9, no, verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare in the coastlands afar of off, and say, He who scattered Israel will gather him, and keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. Is that clear? Yes. Sir. yes. Does that have to be interpreted? No. Not at all. You don't have to interpret those words at all. He who scattered Israel. Did he scatter Israel? Let's start there. Did he scatter Israel? Yes. Is that a historic reality? Yes. Did he do that? Yes. Did he take credit for it? Yes. Did he say he was responsible for it? Yes. Okay, well, he said, just like I scattered them, I'll gather him. Okay, so if you admit that God scattered Israel, you also have to admit that God will gather Israel. It's just axiomatic at that point. It's just basic logic at that point. If you admit that God scattered Israel, you have to agree that God will gather Israel. You have no choice. It's one sentence. You can't divide the sentence. For the Lord has ransomed Jacob. How did he ransom Jacob? Through the death of his son, who paid for all his sinfulness. The redeemer of Israel did his work, which is why the second half of that sentence says, and he redeemed him from the hand of him who was stronger than he. And they shall come and shout for joy on the height of Zion, and they shall be radiant over the bounty of the Lord, over the grain and the new wine and the oil and over the young of the flock and over the herd, and their life shall be like a watered garden. And they shall never languish again. They're never going to be in pain again. They're never going to be in trouble again. They're never going to worry about their enemies again. That hasn't happened yet. But it's going to. Verse 13. Then the virgin shall rejoice in the dance. And the young men and the old together. I'm glad he included the old there. Amen. Amen. A little more dancing by old guys. That's what we need around here. For I will turn their mourning into joy. And I will comfort them and give them joy for their sorrow. And I will fill the soul of the priest with abundance, and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. All right. We're done for tonight. We almost got to the new covenant, which is where we're going to pick up next time. In fact, I'm going to put a mark right there, and we're going to pick up right where we left off. Now, next week, I may be going to Tuscaloosa. It looks like that at this point. And I've left it up to Tom and Micah to decide who's going to stand up here next week. Have you decided yet? You're going to do it. okay? So Tuesday night, men's meeting, Micah. And then Wednesday night, Bible study, Tom. So if I have to go to Tuscaloosa next week, in two weeks, we will start at the New Covenant. And we are now about halfway through the Jeremiah stuff that I wanted to get to last week. (laughs) And there's a lot of stuff. And we're just dealing with the stuff that has directly to do with the Jehoiakim time. We haven't gotten to the Hezekiah stuff yet. And the Hezekiah stuff in Jeremiah essentially says the same thing. But you just need to know historically that at this moment in time, when God has scattered Israel, when he's about to scatter Judah, that's when God appears on the scene talking about restoration, redemption, and how he will be their God and they will be his people. Because that's just how God works. You know, back in the garden, when Adam and Eve were in the garden, and they knew nothing but life. Life was all they knew, and God showed up talking about death. And they had no concept of death, but on the day you eat it, you will die. And so now here we are in this world that is nothing but death. Death everywhere. Death like an enemy is rampaging around the world, and God shows up talking about life. This is the way God works. And so when Israel's at their worst when they're in their scattered state, when they're taken out of their land, God comes and talks to them about redemption and his faithfulness and his covenant making and his promises to the forefathers and his promises to David. Because those supersede the fact that the people have been evil. And God is in heaven today with his son advocating for you, ever living to make intercession for you, and because of an unconditional promise that he made to his son, that his son would have a people, he calls you his people, even though you're bad people. But he's got a history of doing that. So the story of Israel and God's faithfulness to Israel is absolutely great news to us here today who name the name of Christ. It's as current a lesson today as it's ever been because it tells us of God's faithful continuity to his own word his own promises and his own covenants and if he would be that faithful to covenants he made to men like Abraham and David don't you think he'll keep the promises he made to his son I do so that's why I have great confidence so you see why the Jeremiah stuff matters It doesn't just matter so that we can get our Israelology right, though it does. It matters so that we can get our Christianity right, because we're trying to get the Bible right. Make sense? Makes sense. You glad you were here? Yes. Did you learn something? Yes. Okay, then that made it worth it. Any questions I shudder to ask? No? We're good? Clear. Okay, say goodbye to the internet congregation.